Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Who's excited for the big game? Yeah, not many of us, I understand. But what I am excited about is I read an article that they expect this uh, tonight, Americans will eat 1.4 billion chicken wings. Can I get an amen on that? I'm ready for some good food. It's the best part about the game. Uh, Man, I'm glad that you are here. Before we jump in this morning, I want to make you aware of an exciting opportunity coming up here at Bridgepoint. Uh, Many of you know that um, if you've been at Bridgepoint for a while, that one of our ministry partners is a children's home and school in Seguatepeque, Honduras called Destino del Reino. And what makes Destino so special is that it was a school designed specifically for the poorest of the poor. Um, And so actually, that if you make too much money, you can't be a part of this school. A lot of times, the only food these kids are eating, only clothes they have, come from being a part of Destino. And it's actually one of the most prestigious schools in the area. And so they're really doing the work of bringing heaven to earth. We love partnering with them. And this summer, for the first time in a number of years, we're actually able to send a team of people on a mission trip to Honduras. So they've asked us to come and to put on a sports camp and to minister uh, to some of these kids living in these communities. So it's a a great opportunity. This was all spearheaded by one of our life groups. It's an outreach and missions life group that's been meeting together since August. And they've kind of got everything ready to go. But they've opened up a few extra spots for people who aren't in that group if you're interested in and taking, a part, taking part in this mission trip, you can do so. And so kind of some of the important details that it's going to be from June 3rd through 9th this summer. And the cost per person is uh, $1,250, which actually for an international mission trip like this is really affordable. And I know they're going to be doing some fundraising things, some stuff to offset this cost. And so we never want finances to be a reason you don't do something. So even if that seems unattainable, we have some ways we want to help you take part in that. So like I said, there's a few spots left. If you are interested in being a part of this, you can actually um, stop. We have a table in the lobby set up. So after service, you can meet with them. They can fill you in on the details and, and give you all the answers to the questions that you have. If you've never been a part of a mission trip before. I highly encourage you. As your pastor, I would love for you to be able to do that. It's one of the most life-changing things that you can be a part of, and so you can find that information in the lobby. Now, this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing on in our series looking at Paul's letter to the Romans, and as we've kind of said every week, like we're, we're, Paul's building a case here, and so we're more than a month in. So this, you're like, if you're, it's your first Sunday here, we're so glad you're here, but you're like jumping into the middle of a Netflix series. I'm going to try to give you as much as I can, like previously in Romans, as I can, but uh, to get the full picture, you know, you can go back on YouTube or on our podcast and get caught up. But this is a letter written by the early Christian leader, Paul, to a network of five Roman house churches. So think like five churches, 20 to 30 people gathering in homes. And he's writing this letter because they're experiencing a significant amount of division, almost to the point where the church is going to collapse and rip apart or split into two, which honestly I think is how many of us in our culture kind of handle division. 
right? We, we get in fights with somebody or even in our churches. We don't like something somebody's doing. We'll go and we'll start our own church. Well, for Paul, that was like the worst thing that could happen because it's actually when different groups of people are unified, that actually shows that Jesus is stronger and more powerful and he has come to do something different than the rest of the world has come to do. And so he has these two groups that he is addressing in this letter. The first one he calls the weak, and these are uh, primarily Jewish Christians who, as Jewish people, they grew up, they knew the Torah, and they followed all the, the practices that set Jewish people apart. So circumcision, Sabbath, kosher food, those kinds of things. Now, when they became Christian, they didn't stop being Jewish. And so those were still practices that were central and important to them. And they felt like even Jesus was Jewish. He did these things. So if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, we got to do the things that he did. So everyone should be following these practices. Well, where the rub came in is that the, the group that Paul calls the strong were these non-Jewish or Gentile Christians that actually were sitting in the positions of power and authority in the church. And as Gentiles, they had no connection to the Jewish scripture. So these practices weren't important to them, and they didn't think they should be practiced. And so on one hand, you have the weak with no power and authority who are sitting in judgment over the strong, saying, you're not following scripture. You're not doing the things Jesus did. We don't even think you're actually following Jesus. And then the strong are using all their power and authority to try to push the weak out of the church. And so there's this big division. Paul writes this letter to encourage them to be unified. And last week, we wrapped up the first kind of major movement in this letter, where Paul spends four chapters making almost one singular point, and that's that no group is superior to another group. So he says, like, the, the strong, you're not better than the weak, but the weak, you cannot sit in judgment over the strong. Like, you have to be unified. You cannot see yourself as better than other people. And today, we're starting this second movement where Paul's going to explain why. So he's going to kind of pull out, get a 50,000-foot view of the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world and why it is important that the church stay unified. So I have good news and I have bad news this morning. Which one do you want first? Bad. Everybody always picks bad, right? Well, here's the bad news. We're going through two chapters today, all right? Now, you want to hear the good news? The good news is that we're going through two chapters today. We're going to get a lot accomplished. It's going to be great. So I'm not going to hit every single verse in chapter 5 and 6. Um, if you want to talk about it later, I have, probably have like four hours worth of material I had to cut out. And so I'd love to talk about that. But we're going to start this morning by jumping into Romans chapter 5, verse 12. All right, buckle up. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sin. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. All right. So what Paul does is he introduces this idea that when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. Now, we all come to Scripture with kind of our lens of how we view the world, and maybe for a lot of us, we, we've heard the Scripture taught before, like, you know, all of us have sinned, and we stand guilty before a God who one day we will die, and we will stand before God as judge, and he will play a YouTube movie of our entire life, and he will condemn us for all of our sins. Doesn't that sound like the worst movie ever to watch, like your whole life back? And then when he's ready to pronounce you guilty, Jesus stands up and says, I object. 
I will pay the penalty on this person's behalf. And God says, I'll allow it. And so you are acquitted. And then he'll slam his gavel down. You get to go into heaven, right? That's kind of how a lot of people have this picture of what these verses are communicating. And really a big reason why is that we are all living in in the Western part of the world. We have an individualistic mindset. And most, if not all of us in this room, come from a line of faith called Protestantism. So anybody remember like high school history class, Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther wants to reform the Catholic Church, ends up there's a whole movement of people protesting Protestant, the Catholic Church, and a lot of the Protestant theologians, so we look at like Anselm or Augustine, a lot of them had a background where they were trained in law. And so if you're a lawyer, you're going to see everything through the lens of legal uh, ramifications, right? You ever hear the phrase, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail? And so they knew the law, they interpreted scripture from that framework, and a lot of that gets baked into theology that's handed down to us. Now, what's the issue with that? Well, Paul's writing this. Paul was not a lawyer. Paul's not a Western person. He's a first century Middle Eastern Jewish man who writes from that perspective. So it's very much a community perspective. There's a picture of what's going on in the world that can seem very different or foreign to many of us. Now, Paul's understanding is that he says when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. And he doesn't use it um, exactly like this, but we can think of it as lowercase sin and uppercase sin. So lowercase sin is Paul uses sin as a verb. It's something that Adam did. It's something that we all do. We can commit sins. But then there's this uppercase sin where Paul will use sin as a noun. Like sin is something that devours. Sin is something that enters in. And he refers to it as this power or force that is at work in the world. So we sin, but then the power of sin and death are at work to try to corrupt the world. Now, to try to illustrate this, how many of you have ever seen the movie Hocus Pocus? Anybody? All right, a few of us. All right. Some of you didn't raise your hand, and I'm pretty sure you've seen the movie, but you didn't want to raise your hand. That's fine. It's a safe space. Now, if you've seen the movie before, essentially the gist of it is this uh, kid lights a candle on Halloween and these three witches enter the world and cause all of this havoc. That's like your one sentence review of that movie. And in the same way, what Paul's saying is when Adam sinned, the powers of sin and death were unleashed into the world. And they actually are trying to actively corrupt the world. So we live in a world where sin and death are king. And, and when we sin, we actually give more power to this uh, power of sin, who then turns around and influences us to sin even more. And if this is confusing, I'm going to try to give you one more illustration. I did run by my wife. I was like, you know, does this make sense to you? She said it did, so hopefully this will make sense to you as well. Um, when the internet first started, and I got to be careful because there's like people at our church who are part of the internet starting. So this is like an illustration here, very baseline. But when the internet first started, people would get on and they would make web pages, right? And I remember going to the library because that was the only place that had internet. And I would go to starwars.com because the only thing I could think to type in the address bar. And, And you would go on these web pages and you can learn. But before Google, like there was a time before Google, like you didn't, there wasn't a search engine. So the way that you would um, learn about other web pages is your web page would link to a different one. And so if you click enough links, you can go 17 pages away and you're learning about like Renaissance era painting when you started at Pokemon and you can learn different things. So you have all these web pages that are connected by all these links. 
When Google came along, one of the first algorithms that they used, and it's changed since then, one of the first algorithms is they would display the search results in order of which pages were linked to the most. Because obviously those were popular, those were informative to people. And so you would get the top linked article and then everything else down from there. So then you have this really weird phenomenon that goes on, right? Because Google is looking for what's been linked to the most. So when a new web page pops up, what are they going to link to? They're going to link to the ones that have already been linked to the most, and so those ones remain at the top of the list. By the way, this is why I don't trust Netflix top 10 list, because I think they just put their own movies on there, because if you see it's the number one movie, you think, well, I'm missing out, I should watch it, and then more people are watching it, so it stays on the top 10. I don't know why I'm so fired up about that. I just see, you know, I just don't trust them. But it's this idea that there's all of these web pages down here that are linking and doing things that are then influencing this uh, power up here that is then turning around and influencing all of these web pages that are being created. That's what sin does. We commit sin. It empowers the power of sin and death who then turn around and influence us to say, well, this is just the way the world operates. Like if you want to get ahead, you got to put yourself first, right? You need something from somebody, we got to manipulate them. Somebody hurts us, we need to get our revenge, right? Like my fulfillment is going to come by having the most things and the most stuff and by getting that promotion because that's just the way the world works. And so the power of sin and death are ruling and working in this world. And then Paul has that really weird phrase where he says, well, sin had power. Sin was in the world before the law, but it wasn't counted against people until the law. And that is, I think, one of the worst ways to translate this verse from Greek into English possible. Because there is a phrase or a word that Paul will use that means imputed or charged to a person's account. But that's not the word he uses here. In fact, the word he uses is the word allegeo, and it actually means reckoned with or, or became considerable. So what he's actually saying is sin was in the world before the law, but when the law came in the world, sin became a considerable force became a force to be reckoned with. Just from the time of Adam to Moses, death was the king, but now we know sin has gained power as well. Now, why on earth does Paul mention that? It's crucial to the point that he is making. It all has to do with the law. Was the law bad? Is he saying, well, the law came in just to show people how sinful they were? No. Why did God give the law? Well, we talked about this a little bit last week. You remember, when he called the Jewish people to himself on Mount Sinai, he gave them the law, he gave them Torah to set them apart from the rest of the world. And God didn't set them apart because he said, uh, you guys are better than everybody else and I love you more and I hate everybody else. Or I'm going to call you out for salvation and I'm going to damn everybody else. He said, I've called you out so that you would be a light to the world. I'm setting you apart. You're doing these things like Sabbath and circumcision and kosher food to set you apart so that the world would be drawn to what I am doing. So the world would see what heaven on earth looks like. Does this, are we tracking so far? Remember last week I had the whole candle thing. It was like a night, that's probably the only thing anybody remembers, but that's fine. And so the, the other way we could think about this is how many of you have ever been to a pool where there is a lifeguard? All right, this is where I really just see some of you are never going to raise your hand no matter what. You want a million dollars, raise your hand. You won't do it. I, I know. I get it. When you go to a pool and there's a lifeguard, the lifeguard has been set apart, right? They're, they're different. They, they get to wear a special uh, uniform, right? Like they get to wear the red bathing suit. They get the special chair where they get to sit up and judge everybody else, right? They get the umbrella up there. They even get a whistle. I mean, they, they are different. 
Now, are they set apart because they're just inherently better people than everybody else? No. Are they set apart because they're the best swimmers? No. They're set apart so that if someone is in crisis or someone is drowning, they can rescue them. But what if a lifeguard is sitting up there looking at all these people? Look, they don't know how to swim. They don't know how to do everything else. And what if somebody starts drowning and they say, you know what? That sign over there says no horseplay. They should have listened to the rules. They can fend for themselves. You know, then I'd have to get down out of my chair and I'd have to get wet and that'd be an inconvenience. And what if I'm in the water and my boss shows up and he thinks I was just in the water playing? I can't be counted with one of them. I got to be separated for myself. And so a lifeguard, that's a, obviously a trivial example. But in that example, the lifeguard would see them being set apart is making that they need to protect that. And so they're not actually going to serve other people. And in the same way, Israel was given the law to set them apart, but then all of a sudden they began to see themselves as superior. All of a sudden, I'm not going to get involved in your mess. That's your fault. I can't be around you because then people might think I approve of what you're doing. And so they all of a sudden started to have this division between them and the world. And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, the law was given so that Israel would be separate. But when the law came in, sin twisted it to make them think they were superior. And through the law, sin took something that was supposed to be good and made it into something that was a tool for evil, which is important for us to remember because there's a lot of people who can use scripture today and they can use it for a lot of evil. Like just because somebody makes a compelling case out of scripture does not mean that they are correct. And by the way, that goes for me as well. That's why my goal up here on Sunday is not to convince you that I'm right. My goal is to teach so that you would be spurred on to, to do research with other people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to see what truth actually is. But man, we can take anything that's good. The power of sin will take your job, which is good, and twist it to become an idol in your life. Sin can take your family, which is a blessing to you, and turn it into something that becomes an obsession for you. He can, it can take anything in the world and twist it and use it for evil. And that's exactly what was happening. So the picture Paul's painting, there's this power of sin at work in the world. It's taken even the good things and corrupted them. I mean, this is a world that's ruled by sin and death. And we think this is just the way the world is. But he continues on in the next verse. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass, many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, there's a lot there. I mean, that's a whole seminary class to just break that down. But the idea that he's saying is, listen, this world is dominated by the powers of sin and death. And in a world dominated by sin, there's division, there's divisiveness, there's selfishness and selfish ambition. Everything is about me. And that, that power of sin always leads to death. But the good news is that just like sin entered the world through one man, the, the gift of grace and righteousness came through Jesus Christ. And he said, listen, and that, the good news is that that gift is even more powerful than what Adam did. 
What Jesus did is actually going to overcome what Adam did. And so now we don't have to live in this world of sin and death. We can live in a world of grace and righteousness. In other words, we don't have to live enslaved to sin. We don't have to live where sin is king, but we can actually live where Jesus is king because he's broken into the world to bring heaven to earth to do something new. Are we still tracking? All right, good. Because now we're going to jump down to verse 20, where Paul's going to kind of summarize everything he's covered in chapter 5 up to this point. He said, The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says, um, you know, the law came along. And that, that phrase there, came along or entered in, it's a phrase Paul uses very commonly. I think a lot of times you use, well, the law came in and that resulted in sin. And so God just gave the law so that we would see how sinful we are and, and then grace could abound. That's not what Paul's saying. Because that phrase came along or entered in, he always, every time, uses that phrase to talk about false teachers who have entered into the church to bring about division. And what I believe Paul is saying here is he's talking to churches, remember? Churches who are divided over the role that the Torah, the law, plays in their Christian life. He's saying, guys, in your church, the law has entered in and it's caused sin. It's causing you, you're supposed to be living under the power of Jesus, but now you're living under the power of sin. It's caused all this division, this divisiveness, this trespass. But listen, as, as dark as things seem now, guess what? The gift of grace through Jesus is even better than that. Jesus can unify what's broken. No matter how much sin is there, God's grace is going to cover it and is bigger than anything that has happened up to this point. Are we still tracking? Because then we get to the good stuff in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. So Paul poses this question. And he's asking like, so you might say, well, Paul, you're telling us that we don't really need to have the Torah, that it's just bringing sin and division and all of this stuff. But you said the grace of God's bigger. So who cares? Can't we just bring the Torah in? If sin abounds, won't grace abound even more? Like, like can't we just keep doing what we're doing? And Paul says, absolutely not. Because when you decided to follow Jesus, you died to living under the power of sin. In other words, you cannot use all the tactics of sin in order to get the results of a life with Jesus. You cannot use old creation tactics to get new creation results. You cannot manipulate people and have them look more like Jesus. You cannot betray people or allow bitterness and division to develop and then think that you're actually going to experience eternal life, heaven on earth. You, you, you can't do that. That's not the way this works. You were dead to sin because you've been baptized into Jesus. So, so really, he's talking there's two ways of life. We can live under the power of sin. We can live under the power of Jesus. He says, but you were baptized into Jesus, so you should be living this way. 
And when he says baptized, I think it's, a, it's really a dual meaning here. Yes, you, when you were baptized, you were baptized into this new way of life. You were reborn in him. But I think what Paul's also saying is like, you were baptized. Your life should be submerged into Jesus. Like, and, and when you're submerged into Jesus, you have to die to the old things because now you're supposed to walk in the newness of life, which is a fancy way of saying there's a new way of living. There's a new way of living that looks completely different from the old way of living, which sounds like very simplistic. But think about how many times we follow Jesus, but does our life actually look any different than if we weren't following him? Other than maybe you'd be at brunch right now instead of sitting here. I don't know. Is that what people who don't go to church do? They have brunch on Sundays. I one day would love to experience a Sunday morning brunch. But we can't just live like this one life and slap the label of Jesus on it and think that we actually have to die in order to experience this new way of life. That means we have to be willing. And by the way, that's not a message that like preaches real well, right? Because we think, oh, come to Jesus and he's going to fix your marriage. Come to Jesus. You'll be a better parent. Come to Jesus. And there's 10 steps to financial peace. Like he's going to fix your life. It's a lot harder to say, come to Jesus so you can die and give up everything you've worked for up to this point. Like that's what we're talking about. But really what it boils down to is do we really trust that living the Jesus way is better than living under the power of sin? I've used this example a number of times, but it just works so well here. Um, when our kids were little, um, you know, with little kids, like, toys must be, like, 25 cents because, like, grandparents give them, like, a mountain, like, this big for Christmas. And so every year at Christmas, we got to go through, we got to pack up all their old toys so we can donate it. And when we were young and earlier in our parenting, we were naive and thought, won't this be a great opportunity to teach our kids about generosity and we'll involve them in it? No, 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 no. They are very materialistic and selfish creatures, right? They are sinful to the core. And so all of a sudden, toys that they didn't even remember they had are like, no, that's my favorite thing. I've got kids like almost in middle school who still have like Power Rangers toys they won't get rid of because we might play with it one day. And so, so we have to go in and we kind of have to do all this at night because we have to make room for the new stuff they don't know they're getting. Like they're hanging on to the old stuff and they don't realize the more they hold on to that, the more they're missing out on the new thing. And, and listen, it's the same way in our life. We're holding on to our career and our finances and our family and our dreams. But the tighter you hold on to that, the more you miss out on the new way of life that God has for you. Now, let me be abundantly clear. What I am not saying is, listen, if you tithe 10%, God's going to give you 20%. And if you give up your car, God's going to bless you with a Mercedes. No, not at all. We're talking about ways of life. It's trusting that, that when we live under the power of sin, it's all about us. And so we get our needs met and we work everything for ourselves. But will we actually die to that and trust that a way of living where Jesus is king and we give all of ourselves to other people, that that actually is better. That is eternal life. That's what we were created for. But we're scared. And like my kids who held on to their stuff, we hold on to our stuff too. But will we move from living under the power of sin to the power of Jesus. That's what Paul is getting at here. And he continues on in the next verse. He says, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin, or another way you could translate this is the body of sin, might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. 
death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It talks about how Jesus died to sin and he was resurrected. And when we die to sin, we get to experience that resurrection. And, and this is a beautiful thing because he actually used this phrase, body of sin. And I love this guy. I think this paints such a beautiful picture of what's going on here. If I were to say to you, the body of Christ, in your mind, if you grew up in church, like certain things would come to mind. The body of Christ is the people who are supposed to be living where Jesus is king. But the body of sin is what we're born into. And the body of sin is a way of life where sin and death are king. And this is the way that we have lived our entire lives. And so what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to be transferred from, from the, the body of sin into the body of Christ. And that happens through Jesus' death and resurrection when we put our faith in him. Is this making sense? Yes, no, we're tracking? All right. Because we get to the very next set of verses here. And this is, remember, Paul's talking to churches. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. So he's saying, hey, don't let sin have the members of your mortal, your fleshly body. All right? he's, he's not talking about like, we're talking body of sin, body of Christ. And what Paul is saying, hey, in your flesh and blood community, in your house churches, don't let your members become weapons of unrighteousness. Don't let your members be doing the work of the power of sin and causing division and causing controversy and shutting people out and, and cutting people off. Like, don't let that happen. But instead, they ought to be weapons of righteousness or weapons of justice. Which, by the way, doesn't that sound like a great name for a Christian metal band? Like, Weapons of Justice! Any Striper fans in the house? Anybody know? There we go. All right. Thank you. Not the only one. So, like, we're supposed to be weapons of justice, which is actually this, like, crazy weird term if you think about it. Do you think a weapon divides, right? A weapon of unrighteousness and injustice we get. But to be a weapon of justice, I mean, what a beautiful picture of what the members of the body of Christ are supposed to do. That means we actually go out and anywhere we see injustice, we bring justice. And by the way, he's talking about in the church community. So what does it look like for us to be weapons of justice? Well, do you know people in this body of Christ who are at odds with one another? How can you go in and work for reconciliation? Or are you a member of this body who's at odds with somebody else? Will you work for reconciliation? When you see a single mom who's barely hanging on, juggling work and sports and everything else, what does it look like to be a weapon of justice for her? When you hear of somebody who's sick, whether it's COVID or cancer, what does it look like for you to be a weapon of justice to them? Like, that's what the church is supposed to be. By the way, I think that this is, is what is so wrong with a lot of the way the American church works. And by the way, when I say that, I'm including myself as a pastor in this. Because a lot of times as churches, what we end up doing is we operate like a body of sin, but we just put a veil of Jesus over it. And so we operate like organizations or restaurants or businesses. I think this is why church hurt actually wounds us so deeply because we fundamentally know that's wrong. 
Because there are people who are supposed to protect us and care for us and be weapons of justice in our life. And then they're the ones who turn around and they've become weapons of unrighteousness and they've hurt us. There's a pastor that I loved and admired from afar for a number of years and just a phenomenal teacher and just like uh, seemed to be just an exemplary life. And about a year and a half ago, um, news came out that he had sexually abused four women at his church. He had um, used his position as pastor and counselor to manipulate women into sexual relationships. These women were not his wife. And I remember when the news first came out, I was just like, no, not him. Like, this can't be true. I mean, isn't that like how broken my own reaction is to be like my first reaction is like, no, this can't be true. But then as more details started to come out, I just like, even from afar, it's just like, how, that, that shouldn't be this way. And I don't mean to make it into a thing about abuse, but just like we inherently know, like if a CEO of a Fortune 5 com- company has an affair, we're not surprised by that because, well, that's just the way the world works, right? That's, that's the body of sin. We're supposed to be the body of Christ. It's supposed to be different here. And yet, how often does it operate the same way? And I know I've been convicted because of our churches are built more by leadership books than by scripture, then we're doing it the wrong way. And if our churches are influenced more by leadership gurus than by the words of Jesus, we're doing it the wrong way. And if our churches are more concerned about getting people into a building than about sending people out as weapons of justice, we're doing it the wrong way. And I know I can be just as guilty of this as anybody. This is not me saying, look, Bridgepoint is better than anybody else. This is a letter written to churches. And the call for us is to be a church that is not a body of sin, but that is a body of Christ. And to actually do the work of bringing justice here in this community. And then naturally that will spill out into that community. We're going to jump down the next few verses talking about being slaves of sin versus slaves of God. And there's a great illustration I wanted to give about the, the Avengers movie, the first one where Loki, the bad guy comes, he tells everybody to bow down. And then he said, yeah, humans were made to bow. Now I'm just doing the illustration. I said I was going to skip, but he says humans were made to bow down to something. And then, you know, an old man stands up in the back and Captain America shows up and everybody cheers. But there's actually some truth to what Loki says. Because we were created to serve God and to be his slave. But somewhere along the line, we've gone wrong and we've become slaves to sin. But thank goodness through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been set free from being slaves to sin so that we can serve God and be his slave. Let me get down to verse 20. And this is really where I want us to lean in. Or 21. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. So he says, listen, you used to be, the way you used to live, when you lived under the power of sin, were there things that you were ashamed of? And by the way, this is not like an evangelistic verse. Don't like, don't go out to non-Christian and be like, aren't you ashamed of the way you're living? Because like, no, I'm not. Like he's talking to Christians. He's saying, listen, before you followed Jesus, when you lived under the power of sin and you look back, can you think of things you wish you had done different? Things where you were obviously not motivated by the Holy Spirit, but motivated by your own fleshly spirit. Think about the fruit that was produced. Was it good fruit or was it rotten? Well, we know the outcome was death. In verse 22, it says, But now, since you've been set freed from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, listen, you can think back to the way you used to live. What was that kind of fruit? 
See, now, now that you're in the body of Christ, now that you're living for Jesus, there's different fruit, right? Like, like, like in your life, look, where is there love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, serving others, pouring out yourself? Where, where is that fruit in your life? Because that fruit is evidence that your eternal life starts now. And he says, the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. He's not saying like, hey, when you sin, like now God is punishing you. He's like, when you live in the body of sin, like what happens when you're a slave to sin? You get paid out in death. Like it's a natural consequence, but thank goodness because of Jesus, we now can have eternal life and it starts now. The fruit begins to be produced now. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to have a time of communion. But as we do, there's two questions I want you to wrestle with. The first one is this. Which body am I most aligned with? Is it the body of sin or the body of Christ? Now, let me give uh, two important caveats. First, what I don't mean is like, do you sin? Because that means you can't follow Jesus. That's not at all what I'm saying. Because we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to mess up, right? Like, these Roman Christians were following Jesus and they were horribly messing it up. But it's like the trajectory of your life, is it moving more towards the body of sin or the body of Christ? Like when you look at your life, was there a time before where you were really following God, but now your life really has become all about yourself and your comfort and what you need and what you want and your goals and your aspirations? Or do you look at your life and you're like, you know what? I still, I, I, I have all the sin in the world that I'm dealing with, but I know I'm pursuing Jesus and I'm less selfish today than I was six months ago. And I'm moving in the direction of becoming this weapon of justice. Like, like where's the trajectory of your life? What I also don't mean is, did you pray a prayer one time when you were eight years old? Or did you get saved three years in a row at summer camp when you were a teen? Or did you fill out a connect card at an Easter service? That, that's not, I'm not asking, did you pray a prayer? I'm asking the direction of your life, the life that you are living, which body is it most aligned with? Then the second question, what fruit am I producing? That was at least for me. I know sometimes with questions like this, I just start to be like, oh, Matt, you're like a piece of dirt. Like, I mean, you so you get angry all the time. You're impatient with people. I mean, you see how many people are like backing into their parking spots. I mean, you just uh, sets me on fire. Like, I'm just such a sinful, like, there's no good fruit. And, and man, we can be tempted to think that way. But what I'd really like is, like, where do you see the good fruit produced in your life? Because I can look at my life and say, man, I am a lot more patient today than I was five years ago. I'm a lot less given over to my anger than I was 10 years ago. I'm a lot less judgmental than I was six months ago. And I'm starting to see this fruit of love and patience and kindness. I'm starting to see that in my life. And I want to thank Jesus for that while also being aware of the rotten fruit and asking him to prune that out because he's a good gardener. He'll prune that out. It won't always be fun. And it won't always be easy or painless. But he wants to bring about that fruit in your life. So which body are we aligned with? What fruit are we producing? And man, I would love, this was a letter written to a church and I wish we could just sit down and have a conversation. And what does this mean for our church? Like what kind of body is our church more like? What kind of fruit is our church producing? 
And I know there's a number of you who are in groups that are doing sermon notes right now. And so if you're in a life group, like, please, like, have that conversation. How does this apply to us as a church? Because that's really the question we need to wrestle with. Because here's what I know. As we pursue to be more like the body of Christ, as we become weapons of justice, I believe we will become that light of the world that we've been called to be. And yes, there will be people who are hurting and broken that will encounter that, and their lives will be changed. And they may never step foot inside this church, but that's never what it's been about. It's about being the kind of community here that can be a light to the community out there. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that even though we live in this world dominated by sin and death, and we see it every day, and we see it in the news, and it's heartbreaking, that eternal life has burst into the world through your death and resurrection, that heaven has come to earth. And give us eyes to see where that is true. And would your spirit empower us to live as if heaven and earth was here in full? Pray, God, that you would point out as individuals which body we're most aligned with. Not out of guilt or condemnation, but that so you would draw us back in to your body. I pray for every person here who already knows that their life is more aligned with the body of sin. And I pray for people who are struggling with addiction. I pray for people who are struggling with bitterness. I pray for people who who know that their life is built around themselves that right now, your spirit would break those chains. You would set them free from being slave to sin so they could become a slave to you, Jesus. And I pray that in this moment, you would show us the fruit you're bringing out of our life. And we thank you for that. We also pray that there would be pruning in our lives. Because Jesus, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock. But we also meet during the week in what we call life groups. And that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.